Hey, happy Friday, everybody. I am Joe Marcello, joined as always by my partners in comic book crime, Orrin Phillips. Good evening. And Mike Farah. Hello. We are the Dollar Bin Bandits, and this is the Dollar Bin Bandits podcast. Well, our season of Superman is just getting started. This is our second episode in our Superman run this month. Uh, today, we are proud to bring to you our interview with Tom Grummet. He's a longtime collaborator with our last guest, Carl Kiesel. He had a fantastic long-running career uh, working on action comics, The Adventures of Superman. He worked on Aquaman, Legion of Superheroes, the list goes on. Yeah, he was also uh, one of the first guys on the Superman Man of Steel series that came out, which I really loved. I loved his art in it. And I know it's not Superman, but he also was part of Nightfall, uh, another great series. I remember him from his run with, I believe, Marv Wolfman on uh, New Titans. And he did, he, you know, I, I know everybody is a big Perez guy and Perez is fantastic. But for me, my run was Grummet's and I really grew to grew attached to those characters uh, through his artwork. And of course, a lot of the other comics that have already been mentioned. And I did want to give a special shout out to uh, his work on Robin. He did quite a bit of work with Robin as well. Uh, very good with youthful characters as well as, um, you know, the big grown up guys. Uh, so let's see what he has to say, shall we? This is Tom Grummet. Today, we have the pleasure the honor, the privilege to talk to someone who has inspired my Superman fandom, uh, none other than Tom Grummet. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you. I, I gave you the uh, the heads up that, you know, before we actually went live with this, that you're going to be um, bombarded with a little Superman uh, questioning. Um, hope it's not too overwhelming. But before we get into any of that, uh, we like to ask everyone who's on our show how you got started in comics. How I got started in comics was first, first as a fan and a very, very young fan. Like, uh, before I could read, I was a fan of, of comic books. And I always harbored that that dream that one day I would be in a position to actually make comics and draw all these characters that I'm, I'm a, a huge fan of. I'm a fan of a lot of characters and a lot of comics. And I have always been. was just lucky enough that my path took me into the direction where that dream could be realized. And it took a while. Uh, I didn't break into the industry until I was 30. It was more like, it wasn't like through effort. It just seemed to, one thing led to the next and led to the next. And before I knew it, suddenly there I was, uh, penciling comic books for DC out of nowhere or what felt like nowhere and being deathly afraid that somebody would find out that I was I was the imposter I thought I was. So I'm sure it was like for some people the equivalent of winning a lottery. If I mean, if you want me to go through the laborious steps of how <laughs> how I ended up at that point, I can do that. But uh, it, it could take a while. Well, I mean, it's all, you know, 
what you feel comfortable telling us by all means. But uh, how did from you know from your early you know fandom of, of comics, how did you um, kind of break into the biz? Basically, it was um, I, I live in Canada, and somewhere along the way, I don't know if you if you're familiar with a, a character known as Captain Canuck. Yes. Okay, everybody's <laughs> nodding. Excellent. <laughs> um, in my youthful arrogance, I, I sent samples of my art to Richard Conley at uh, CKR Productions, at, which at that time was the publisher of Captain Canuck. Okay. And he liked them. And uh, we kept up a kind of a correspondence. And unfortunately, Captain Canuck, like a lot of, basically, it was an independent comic book back in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And you can only go so far. A friend of mine says, running a comic book company is like setting money on fire. And that's basically <laughs> what happens. My, my own experience in independent comic books, that's pretty much the way it goes. You're building a bonfire with, with all, all the money that you can lay your hands on. So Captain Canuck had this has had the seeds publication. And several years later, a group from my hometown attempted to buy the rights to publish Captain Canuck. Wow. And I guess by that point I sort of had a rep around town that I was I was a guy who could do this. And they they approached me to, to actually draw the thing. And I actually drew an entire issue of Captain Canuck for these guys to present to the, the, uh, the owner of, of the rights. And with an eye towards, you know, starting a company and setting money on fire and, and publishing Captain Canuck. And what ended up happening is the group could not acquire the rights. But they had everything else in place to launch a comic book company. They had lined up distribution. They had lined up a printer, the whole nine yards. The only thing they didn't have was Captain Canuck. So I said, well, I, I, I'll just make up something else. So I did. And it was a, a comic, a, a little series called The Privateers. It ran two issues. We produced uh, three issues. And uh, two of them got in, into print. And they were honestly printed and distributed. And I would get mail from a fan in the UK or in the States, stuff like that. Basically, what that book was, was my portfolio. And it, it, what, it, what happened was then I started getting uh, offers from other small press publishers to do work, which I did um, in the hopes of, of uh, continuing this little streak I was on. So basically what it boiled, boiled down to is I was doing quite a bit of work for no money because <laughs> you couldn't, you weren't going to get paid unless, you know, the thing, whatever it was you were working on made back some money. So in the course of, of working for the, for one of these small independents, um, I ended up going to a comic convention in Toronto. 
And at that convention, I met Ty Temple. And Ty had seen my privateer's work. He'd sit while well, he bought the comp and he loved them. And, and the last day of the con, he says to me, how would you like to go to work for the big, big guys? And I said, well, sure, Ty. I would absolutely love to do that. I didn't think anything more of it. That night I flew home. The next morning, I get a phone call at my house. It's Mark Wade. And he says, I was just talking to Ty Templeton. He sent me your stop. I really like it. How would you like to do a Secret Origins story for me? And I said, sure. He says, how about Animal Man? I said, sure. I mean, it could have been Detective Chimp, but it was it was Animal Man. And it was at that point I started, the, the steps started to come uh, from one secret origin story. Uh, suddenly I was the alternate artist on Animal Man to help them stay on schedule. Then I got a Wonder Woman story. Then I got every month because I would keep delivering the work, I guess, I would get another assignment. And eventually reached the point where I was offered uh, the new Titans because George Perez uh, was, an, was unable to continue working on the book. And they offered it to me. And like my previous ma mantras, it was, if I was asked, can you do this? The answer was always yes. So now all of a sudden I'm working with Marble Wolfman, which is, I think, pretty cool <laughs> and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> so that's basically how I broke in. That's the long, drawn-out, boring story <laughs> of how I broke into, the, into uh, mainstream comics. I gotta ask though, it's it's gotta be tough for not tough but weird for you know a young artist like yourself, and you're working with George Perez on Titans a bit. Like you said, he takes off, you step in, stepping into George Perez's shoes. What's going through your mind when that reality starts to hit? It's like, well, okay, um, probably deep deep down within me, one of the first things is is that I want to do this. I will do everything I can to, to deliver. And when they figure out I'm not good enough to do this, they will fire me and my career will be over. <laughs> <coughs> that was, that's basically been the way I've operated forever. So uh, I managed to work for a very, very long time and no one seemed to figure it out. So. <laughs> I'm very, I'm eternally grateful for that. Did you feel, well, I was just going to say, go ahead, Mike. Go ahead, Orr. I was going to say, did you feel like you had to not copy George's style, but sort of keep in line with how he was drawing certain characters? Or did you feel free enough that you could put your own spin um, on the art? Well, initially, um, when I started working on Titans, I was working from George Perez layouts. Don't get excited. The George Perez layouts were pretty basic layouts. But 
he'd worked out the panel placement, you know, panel design, page composition, all that kind of stuff. Um, characters were a circle with a couple of dots to show and an arrow showing Nightwing, that kind of thing. Um, so I, you know, I basically, it was less layouts and more breakdowns that Roach was doing. So I was basically doing the art. And initially, Bob McLeod was the inker. So I was working from George Perez layouts and I had Bob McLeod backstopping me as an inker. And I was the meat in the middle of the sandwich. Is what I felt like. I mean, the pages uh, when the books came out, they looked gorgeous, and I could, but I could hardly believe it was it was my stuff, because uh, Bob had beautified them enormously. So uh, that did not hurt by any stretch of the imagination. I didn't really feel that uh, the book was mine until uh, I was doing the whole thing, not not the inking, but I was where. I was no longer working from George's layouts. And I think that was issue, uh, it was the first issue that uh, Alve inked over me. The the exact issue number escapes me. But uh, then I felt it was my book. For a whole generation of fans uh, like myself, uh, who did not necessarily grow up on the George Perez stuff, you were the Titans artist. Um, and I, I, I can say from, you know, we always take little moments here to gush, uh, but for, for me, that was, um, that was sort of a defining moment. That was right when I was getting into comics, uh, around, um, I think just before or just after the, uh, it's all the stuff around Jericho. Um, yeah, maybe the Judas contract. Um, and, you know, one question I had for you around Titans and then also your you got into other series, which we're going to talk about, is you had a really, uh, you still have a really um, a facility for um, drawing young younger characters. Is that something that you felt in yourself or was it just happened to be a lot of the assignments and the work that, that came to you was of youthful characters? Yeah, I don't exactly know where that came from. But I think I figured out that I was the comics industry young kid artist when Wizard contacted me to do a artist's thing on how to draw kids. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay, here we go. I, I don't know where that, where that came from. I, I think it came from doing Superboy and doing Robin, um, you know, more or less simultaneously. Um, and did you feel pigeonholed by, by that in any means? I mean, I know you went on to adult characters of course but well i started with more right of course because the new titans let's face it they dropped the team long before right and they more or less all were pretty much adults and after that i went on to superman so uh, no i never felt pigeonholed by that i figured it was uh, just a weird sort of thing that happened i think i think part of it was i really enjoyed doing robin and doing superboy and i think it showed to the fans of those books that I was, I was really enjoying what I was doing. It certainly showed. Oh, well, thank you. Um, Part of, part of the attraction I had for working on these two books was even, even as a, as a, as a much older person than than their age, I could remember what it was like to do that. 
Robin was kind of the kid I was, you know, minus the tights and all that. And Superboy was what I wanted to be at that age. So I got to I got to play both sides of Jekyll and Hyde. Artistically, who were some of your inspirations when you were either coming up or, you know, be, wanted to be an artist? Because you have a very distinct style, which is very recognizable and one that we appreciate, obviously. Um, and I was just curious if there was, you know, in terms of, you know, your, your artistic background, there's some of the kind of influenced you and kind of how you got your style. Oh, who wasn't an influence? Uh, one of my earliest, earliest memories is of a Superman comic book that Kurt Swan drew. Of course, at the time I had no idea who drew it because DC didn't credit artists back then. First one was Kurt Swan. Let's face it. I, I read everything. I read Dennis the Menace. The George Wildman stuff. I read uh, Archie, and of course the Marvel stuff as well. Uh, who else was an influence? Was Ed Kurt, Jack Kirby, hugely. Um, but Jack, I didn't get into until I was a little more of a preteen. Loved John Buscema right from the get go. Back when he was he was uh, the Avengers artist, his first time around. That stuff was mind blowing to me. Ditko was, uh, Jim Apparel was. Pretty much anybody who put pencil to paper, artistically, I would study. It got to the point where I could I could pick up a book, flip to the middle, and and tell you who who had drawn it for the most part, unless he was a new guy and I'd never seen his stuff before. So I, I was very interested in the way a lot of artists tackled the intrinsic problems, or not problems, but the challenges the comic book story presents to them. And they all did it in, in unique ways. I would, I would try and from the comic book page, no matter how crappily printed, I would try and figure out you know, how, how did, how did you do that? Practically, my, my influences are vast, pretty much a, a complete listing about anybody who's drawing comics. I wanted to talk quickly about Man of Steel and I wanted to get your perspective on something because, um, you know, the idea comes together to put out a new Superman book. Now, he's an established character. There's already Superman books that are out. What's the hook to get readers to check out this new Superman book instead of the other ones, but along with the other ones? Did they make it different from maybe other Superman books that were out there at the time? What I can say about about when I joined Team Superman, Mike Carlin was, was the editor, and he did a superhuman effort to link all those books together and uh, make them a, a cohesive story. The, the idea being that, you know, once a week you'd have Superman come, which was brilliant, but also tough as heck to do because the highest technology at that time was a fax machine. So once a week, we would all get a massive FedEx package of all the scripts and development, all the art, all the pencil art that had been turned in, photocopies, all the ink stuff that had been turned in and lettered. So everybody got to see what everybody else was doing in as close to real time as possible. But the one thing that Carlin tried to impress upon us was that Superman is is a man. He may have alien origins and stuff, but he's essentially a man. And he has limits. Part of the problem of that a character like Superman has is is uh, is power creep. If you if you if you're going to keep the stories going, you have to keep raising the stakes, and uh, it's very easy and I think lazy to uh, let that occur to the point where he becomes godlike. Fundamentally, Superman is a man, and he would point to a particular scene 
in Superman the movie. And it's the scene where Lois is buried in the, in all the gravel and stuff in her, in her car. He pulls the car up out of the dirt and he reaches out and he grabs the, the, the car door. And just the way he does that, that's something we can understand. Flying, or, flying around the, the planet to make it turn backwards, nobody gets that. <laughs> Ripping a car door off to, to save someone you love is highly relatable. And the way he did it, the way Chris, Christopher Reeve did that was bang on perfect. The trick with Superman is to keep him, keep his feet on the ground somehow. So that was, uh, I took that to heart. If he's fighting or picking up a car, it should look like an effort. If he's picking it up, it shouldn't look weightless. It should look like he's picking up a car. Now, he's very, very strong, but that car has weight to it. So when I was drawing every single panel with Superman in it, that's where I tried to convey is that uh, if he was in a fight, he was feeling that fight. He was working in that fight. If he was, you know, picking up a car, he was putting some effort into it. And that's, I think that was the hook we tried to uh, use to bring people to the Superman books. Now, Superman was kind of a mid-range seller at that time. Spider-Man outsold. Uh, X-Men outsold. Wide margin. A lot of a lot of titles outsold Superman, but every pretty much every single person in the industry at the time I joined the Superman team was reading Superman, which I thought was enormously cool. So everybody everybody writing and drawing comic books at that time was reading the Superman books to see what we were doing. Yeah, I I certainly was, and I'm sure Joe uh, can attest. To, I mean, look at his back wall. Um, I wanted to dig in a little bit into, um, you were part of a lot of big scale, large scale events, right? So you were um, part of the team for Death of Superman, for, uh, I forget what they call the follow on, but Rise of the Superman, Reign of the Superman. There we go. Um, you you were, you know, parts of uh, Nightfall and, and those associated storylines, introducing the new Robin, what we consider an underrated early-ish crossover, obviously post-crisis, but Panic in the Sky. Um, was there something, was it again, sort of luck of the draw in terms of these assignments? Or was it something that attracted you to, uh, these sort of monumental story events? No, I think if, if, if the personnel had had to be chosen at, uh, to work on those, I don't think I would have been on the team. I just don't. Um, because here's the fun fact. With Death of Superman and Nightfall a lot, in a lot of ways, was that when, I, when we were working at DC at that time, we were not getting direction from marketing. We were not getting direction from the publisher. The inmates were running the asylum. Okay. The reason the death of Superman story happened when it did is because it was a rare case that editorial or, you know, higher ups interfered in what we were planning to do. He was supposed to get married that year. And we had spent a, a certain amount of time that year. Now, I keep in mind, too, that I had 
pretty much just joined prior to that. It was my very first super summit. And we were planning a wedding. And we got a phone call from Jeanette Kahn saying the wedding's off. And invitations why? were out and everything. I mean, you know. Well, I know. We had the dress <laughs> ordered and everything. <laughs> Cake. Can't get those yeah. deposits back. No, he was supposed to get married. Clark, Clark and Wallace were going to get married. And because and we get a phone call from, you know, down to the room where we've been working for two days planning this wedding that we can't do that story because there's going to be a new TV show called Lois and Clark. And it would be too confusing if they were married in the comic books and they're not married on TV. And we were mad. Pencils were thrown. It was, it was terrifying. And so suddenly, we, after two days of work, we have to come up with a, a plan B. And somebody piped up, well, then let's just kill him. I think it was Ordway, because I guess in previous uh, super summits that I had not been at, that was the running joke, was that, well, let's just kill him. No, so someone was always saying, let's just kill him. So, yeah, no. it's was, it was not an unusual thing. And, and we all laughed, and it broke the tension. And I think it was Roger Stern said, wouldn't it be interesting? I wonder what Mon Park can do. And then we started riffing off each other. And suddenly we're starting to put together this story. And that's what it was. It wasn't, um, it wasn't a stunt. It wasn't a marketing gimmick. It was us coming up with a storyline um, that we could replace our precious wedding with. And uh, the trick was, was turning it into not just a single issue, but a storyline. And, and it was just, it turned out to be, well, I mean, it, just sitting in that room, it was a darn good story. And we didn't have all the details together yet, but it was a really cool story. <coughs> and uh, Mike wisely reined us in and said, okay, hang on. We went to the phone, he phoned Jeanette and said, okay, we're not going to do the wedding. Is it okay if we kill him? And she said, oh, sure. And that's Lo hard. there would not be any confusion with Lois and Clark if no, I, yeah, he's I, alive and then not alive. <laughs> kind of okay. But we had our story. in the comic. How could he be alive? <laughs> I know, but we had our story. And uh I think it's one of the best Superman stories ever done. Um certainly I I don't think you're ever gonna see a story that big done that way. We had four different creative teams working working on this thing. And we all brought our A game to it. 
because we just love that story so much. And we had no idea what was going to happen. I mean, it was just, this is a cool story. I mean, there, there, were, there was no, there was no social media then. There was no, you know, uh, no internet. But DC put out a press release saying that, you know, in such and such a month, Superman is, is going to die. And it was a slow news day. And all of a sudden, before there was such a term as viral, it went viral. The media picked up on it and it became a thing. And I think, I think the thing was, is that everybody knows who Superman is. Everybody has, has a, an idea who Superman is that they hold in their heart. And what it looked like was that we were going to take Superman away. Like for good. And we weren't going to do that. We didn't know how we were bringing him back. But you knew we were bringing him back. <laughs> you mean but the character that the entire in, industry is built on? You were just well, going to yeah. come off for good? <laughs> <laughs> there had been stories of Superman's death before. Right. Some of them were imaginary. Some were really, really weird things. <clears throat> but we turned, we turned this idea, death of Superman, across four Superman, uh, four monthly Superman titles coming out every week and, and made it epic. And that was the best one. I mean, we all got, we all got our little moment to, you know, uh, to honor this character. Not, and not just with the death, but with the funeral. And the reign of the Superman. It was so, the, uh, it was enormously the, proud of that. It was the story that got me into comics. Well, that was yeah, the. Uh, I, think, I think it was just uh, a story that got a lot of people into yeah. comics, and I think it was a story too that made people uh, value Superman again as a character, as much as we did. I mean, every single person who worked on the Superman books was there because they wanted to work on Superman. You know, you didn't just say, you didn't just walk into the DC offices and say, I want to do Superman. I want to work on Superman. No, no. You had to be picked to work on Superman. I'm just curious, on a personal level, when there's an event this big going on, are you nervous at all or knowing that it's not just comic fans who are going to be judging your work, but it's pretty much going to be the world seeing how Superman dies. Are, is there ever a sense of like, Oh my gosh, like are we doing the right thing here? Or is it, are you confident that we have something that's going to be so good that everyone's going to understand why everyone's going to understand the story and it's going to stand the test of time. Well, that, that was what our, our thinking was, right. <clears throat> is, and let's face it, this is what we do. We tell stories. Our job is to, you know, once a month, come up with a, with a story. 
And uh, basically, we thought it'd be of note to comics fans. Okay. And how, you know, how it would be perceived there is, well, who knows? But the fact that the world picked up on it, that was completely unexpected. So, um, this was, that was the part that none of us could have anticipated, nothing we could have planned for. Suddenly we were on this roller coaster and basically what we had to do was hang on. And, uh, and you know, del- deliver the story that we had come up with. Yeah. Our next big problem was, okay, how do we bring them back? And, you know, that was another whole big meeting <laughs> of everybody in the room. Everybody tossing ideas in the, in the pot. So to that point, was Superboy being one of the characters that, you know, what, that emerged from that storyline that was still going on today. Um, how did that arise out of, out of that whole, uh, that whole process? Uh, okay. We had, we were all gathered, you know, in, in New York, uh, with the, with the mission to bring Superman back. And how are we going to do that? Well, okay. So, so we figured, sort of figured that out. And somehow or other, because we had, we had four monthly Superman books, it was an opportunity to play around with the, the idea was <clears throat> And, and we alluded to it um, at the start, uh, likening it to Elvis sightings. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think you guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. So the idea was people are seeing Superman. Right. But, but the descriptions are varying. Right. So what, what that meant was, is then we could, we could try and reimagine each of us, each of us as a team could reimagine Superman. And 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 present the world with um, what on 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 the surface would appear to be one of these guys could be the real Superman going forward forever. Okay. So that was how we approached it. Was to try and come up with a, a variant form of Superman that fans would think would be Superman going forward. And uh, the idea, uh, one of the ideas was a tougher, like Punisher-like Superman. Well, that became the eradicated. Um, Another one was a guy who relied on technology to give himself Superman-like powers. That that became Steel, and it was actually 
I, I had to be reminded about this not too long ago. But Carl Kiesel had just joined the team as the new writer of Adventures of Superman. And we were kind of tossing ideas back and forth about you know, what, what, what ours would be like. And it was actually John Bogdanov who came up with the Superboy idea. And he was probably going to end up being the character in Man of Steel. Who knows what he would have looked like. But uh, Carl and I were seated next to uh, John and Louise, and they were talking this stuff over. <clears throat> we were kind of riffing with them about it. And Carl came up with, don't call me Superboy. And we started coming up with so many ideas. They said, well, look, you guys seem to want to do this so bad. Why don't you take this guy? Why don't you be, why don't you take Superboy? And we went, cool. So then we, had, then we, then we were off to the races. Um, you know, it was the, don't call me Superboy and the adventures of, of Superman, but he's a boy, that kind of tagline. So we had little taglines and, and stuff going. And uh, our approach to it was what Superboy represent, uh, should, re should represent is the Superman from way back in Action Comics 1, number one, back in 1938. It's a young guy. He's full of BS. He's uh, enormously, insufferably self-confident. And that was who we modeled our Superboy character out. That, that original Action Comics 1 Superman was a bit of a smart ass and certainly not your dad's Superman. Though he was my dad's Superman. <laughs> yeah. um, so that that was the uh, that was the, the standard we we set for for uh, for Superboy. And were you wholly responsible for the uh, uh, costuming of the yeah. character? I I love personally. I, I I don't know about anybody else, or if there's any controversy, the leather jacket. Uh, with the elongated sleeves, I think at some points, maybe maybe not at others, but um, and the sunglasses. Um, can you tell us a little bit about you know where that came from, or is just sort of an outgrowth of the character being you know that overconfidence and you know thinking that he's a rock star? Okay, so we wrapped up our summit meeting in New York, and I'm on the plane home. And I'm doodling away on an airline napkin, basically the costume. And I get home and I do up a, a quick sketch of what I'd done on an airline napkin. I wish I'd kept that napkin. It'd probably be worth a fortune today. <laughs> I threw it away. 
And I faxed, faxed the sketch to Carlin and to, to Carl Kiesel. And Carl Kiesel suggested the leather jacket. And I think one of the one of the little sketches I'd done had the glasses. So it was Carl's suggestion that he wear the leather jacket because when he's flying around, flying around up in the stratosphere, it's going to be cold, I guess. Sure. Anyway, <laughs> but it looked really cool over the costume I had, I had designed and the, and the sunglasses just finished it off. So, uh, yeah. And, uh, uh you know, the, the cross belts around his waist and the one on his leg. What that was supposed to evoke was he was a clone. He'd grown up in a tank. There would be these things strapped to him floating in a tank to, uh, you know, monitor his, his life signs and all that kind of stuff. So that's where that came from. You know, people say, why the thing on the leg? Well, because <laughs> looks cool. I think that's all the reason you need, really. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, it got um, got satirized quite a bit. And why has he got that thing? But I don't know. People seem to like it. And to this day, that costume, you know, is still around. Yeah, they brought it back. Yeah, you know they, they went through to the uh, you know jeans and t-shirt look for a while, yeah, uh, which is now in Titans. But they brought back the that version of Superboy. Yeah, a few little tweaks, but it's basically that. Yeah, yeah, I'm a I'm a fan of, of that character. By I mean I, you know, years ago I wanted to be that character for Halloween a few years, but couldn't quite pull it off. Didn't have the hair. <laughs> but uh, I was a big fan of that. Um, you made a um, uh, you made a comment about the Superman storylines, um, and I it really resonates with me because I agree with you. Um, but you said, I believe you said uh, to the effect that you know there really hasn't been a stronger Superman storyline since the death of Superman, and um, I wholeheartedly agree with that. So much so that they, there's a um, there's a line out of the Infinite Crisis um, story that came out years ago that always uh, I always have in the back of my head, and it's Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman arguing together because you know that's what caused the I guess whatever kicked off that whole event is the <clears throat> this rift between those three characters and Batman being the dick that he is basically says to Superman he goes you haven't inspired anybody and uh, oh the last time you inspired anyone was when you died. And it just, it was like, I, I think, you know, that's the biggest gut punch in the world coming from your best friend. But as it pertains to Superman stories, I mean, I think it brings, you know, absolutely true because, you know, there's been some, there have been some very good uh, storylines since, but none that have really resonated with fans and certainly the you know the con contributors to that story um you know since then i, I remember 
Um, and I, I've mentioned a couple of times, but in like one of the DVD extras, Louise Simonson uh, commenting, it was like the Death of Superman cartoon or something like that, that they mm. put out years ago. And she is talking about the whole developmental process and everything that you guys kind of went into. And she's talking about the character and she's in tears discussing, you know, this heartbreaking moment where Superman dies. And I was like, wow, you know, you don't hear that. You don't see that. People getting that upset over a, a made up character. It's just a, it's a comic book character. But, you know, this is a character that has been around for ages and that has, you know, it means a lot to a lot of people. This this guy. Um, but, you know, it's just uh, just one of my two bits on the, on the whole thing. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I mean, there have been very good Superman stories since. And what I meant was, and I didn't mean it to be, you know, this is the best story. This is because people will argue about that endlessly. There have been very good Superman stories since then. But there's never been a Superman story that was done quite that way Mm -hmm. okay you had a whole bunch of people in a in a creative people in a room working collaboratively with each other to make this thing not just what it was but uh, but yeah what it was and interesting what you said about Weezy being you know in tears it's because, and I think the reason that story was so big is because, and, and was so resonant with so many people, is because it looked like we were taking Superman away. You know? However cynically that, that might be. And don't forget, this was not that long, at, uh, long after New Coke. So, you know, that storyline was floating around out there that the evil, you know, the, you know, evil DC and the corporation has decided Superman is irrelevant and is going away. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. Like I said, everybody in that room loved the character of Superman. We all had different visions of, you know, the epitome of what Superman was. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all had, uh, we all had a picture in our heads of, of you know, what the, the best, what the classic Superman is, looks like and sounds like and what he will do and what he won't do. The, the battles we would have in that room once a year were just, would be epic. But we all pulled together as a team and, and, you know, put out the best stories we possibly could. And this particular one, uh, I think is, is never going to be, uh, duplicated because those conditions won't exist again, you know, editorial, they won't exist again. 
<clears throat> um, either, either a publisher won't let them do it, or if a publisher tries to mandate it, it won't come together exactly the same way. So thank you for that. And Tom, we want to be uh, mindful of your time. So we have um, probably one, maybe two last questions. Speaking of, you know, gone too soon or, or uh, taken away from us, um, we wanted to talk a little bit about Section Zero, uh, okay. which sort of had an auspicious debut under the guerrilla imprint of Image Comics. Um, I think faithfully uh, and unfortunately, uh, was uh, closed after three three issues, mm -hmm. but then recently resurrected um, in a series of um, Kickstarter campaigns, which have been highly successful with you and your frequent collaborator, uh, collaborator Carl Kiesel. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, can you give us a little uh, background on on the whole gorilla fiasco, if you want to characterize it that that way, and then just in general, you know, resurrecting this property and working with Carl again, what that, what that feels like and where that chemistry, uh, if you guys just picked off, picked up where you had left off. Okay. Um, okay. Gorilla. Uh, remember what I said about setting money on fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was, a lot like that podcasting. <laughs> Launching, uh, Launching a, a uh, company or an imprint or anything like that is um, there's so very much that's out of your control. Um, Gorilla started; it was going to be a completely different thing. It was going to be its own thing. It was not going to be an imprint. It was going to be a publishing venture, and. That it that unfortunately didn't didn't happen. So there, once again, very similar to the Captain Canuck situation, we just decided to soldier on nonetheless. And uh, you can only do you can only do that for so long without any return. So we got three issues into it and couldn't continue any further. There was just no way. We had we both basically had to go back to work. And and um as much as we loved working on Section Zero, we had to stop and and earn money to feed ourselves again. <clears throat> and it was what, 15 years? Something like that? 18 years? A long time. Uh, before we could pick it up again. But it was always in the back of our minds to somehow find a way to do it. And uh, whenever people used to ask me about it, I said, well, we just have to wait for the stars to come back into alignment for it to happen. We both have to be available to do it. And Kickstarter seemed to be this way to do it. And it was. Uh, we managed to finish off the storyline, uh, not as originally intended, of course, because Carl managed to fold in the 18-year 
gap into the story. And I think turned it into an amazing story. That, uh, Carl Kiesel is a genius when it comes up to stuff like that. Because when he when he pitched that out in the original, uh, uh, with the idea of finishing off that story, I said, okay, I guess. <laughs> and I just said, all right, let's make it happen. And I trusted that he would find a way to do it, and he did. And, I, and it turned out to be, I was frankly astonished that it was, it was as good as it was. It was beyond good. It was genius. So, yeah, there it is. Magic. Comics <laughs> magic. It's magic. It's sorcery. <laughs> well, well, go ahead, Joe. No, no, no. I was, I was, you, you go ahead. Sorry. I, I was just going to say, Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure yeah. talking to you. Um, Besides Section Zero and, and that work, is there anything else you want to promote, plug, tell our uh, listeners and viewers about? Well, at the moment, um, not really. Uh, I'm kind of working on some smaller side projects. Um, that I can't even really talk about at the moment, but uh, just doing commission work. Um, this pandemic era has been <laughs> really, really strange. So I, I really have no idea uh, what's up in the future, but uh, perhaps it's an opportunity for some ideas that have been rolling around in the back of my mind for decades and decades or been put on the back burner for far too long. Maybe it's time to haul those out and play around with them and, and see what happens. Um, so yeah, stay tuned. I'm not going anywhere. Um, Where can uh, folks find you? online if they can do you have any uh social accounts you might want to point them to oh i'm on instagram that's okay. about the only thing and the reason it's it's just instagram is is i just post art sure. you know post commissions and, and and stuff like that so i am on instagram tv grummet is uh where i'm at so i'll be watching for you guys to show up as followers we, we will we will follow you for sure and we will uh send all our folks our i would like to say our army but i, I don't think we've grown that big yet uh but everybody we know <laughs> a battalion sure a battalion <laughs> okay. yeah a solid go. battalion send your squad right right <laughs> local folks <laughs> We have a golf team. No. <laughs> but he's welcome. <laughs> All right. Well, well thank, thank you. So thank you much. again. And um, I, I just want to say thank you for everything that you've done um, and the contributions you've made to, you know, the, the characters that we love so much. Well, thanks. 
been a lot of fun to to do it. Um, staggeringly, it's I've been at this for a long, long time, and uh, uh, very proud of my career and the six year old that still dwells in me is uh, still thrilled to have been able to draw all these great characters over the years. It's been a blast. Hey, welcome back. So that was our interview with Tom Grummet. Uh, just a really chill, cool guy. Uh, you know, what sticks out for me is his run on Superboy. He was really instrumental in developing that character along with Carl Kiesel. And it was just a real pleasure talking to him. And I'm learning, uh, there's a site on Twitter that tells about the DC series of cards with Impel in 1991. And he did a lot of art for those cards, I'm finding out. And uh, they were cards that I really enjoyed too. So uh, just make me love his art even more. Yeah, Grummet, um, as I said, just one of my one of my guys, just really enjoyed every book he worked on. Uh, you know, he's continuing to do uh, things here and there, uh, working on a revival of Section Zero, which was sort of the ill-fated uh, gorilla imprint of image uh, book that he worked on with Kiesel. Definitely check him out and uh, check us out. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Dollar Bin Bandits. We are on YouTube most of the time, not this episode. Dollar Bin Bandits. You know, look us up on Dollar. Just look us up anywhere. Dollar Bin Bandits. You'll find us except Twitter, DB Bandits. Uh, Dollar Bin Bandits at Gmail if you want to send us a old-fashioned yet well-worded email. And uh, I think that's going to do it. Um we want you to rate, review, and subscribe. So please do that and continue to support our little podcast here. Uh, we have more Superman guests coming up the rest of this month. So we will see you next time. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Oren Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all the socials at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.